Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, you're listening to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Uh, hi, I'm Bill. Uh, each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step groups that uh, assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling. So that includes Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous and Alan Family Groups. Our guests share their recovery experience and hope that their story can encourage others who want to change their lives. Today, um, my guests are members of Alan Family Groups and they're going to be talking about living the effects with the effects of someone else's alcoholism um, and how Alan helped them to cope. So I'd like to welcome Emma and Barry to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi, Bill. Thanks, Bill. So we usually start talking about growing up and living in an alcoholic home. And, you know, as you're both children of alcoholics, what that was like for you and um, what were the, the sort of things that happened in your family were maybe a little bit different to other people. So, Emma, do you want to kick off and just talk about what it was like growing up you know, with, with a parent who was an alcoholic? Yeah, sure. I think um, for me growing up in an alcoholic household, I think it, it took me a long time to realise, and it probably wasn't until I was outside of that household that I realised that I was actually growing up in an alcoholic household. Um, but growing up, I guess, for me and my siblings, there was a lot of fear in our family, a lot of fear that drove us um, and probably in some respects, created who we are now as people as well. And I developed a lot of skills as a result of a lot of that fear. Um, I call them skills. Now I now realise that, that they are defects of character later on in life. <laughs> um, but I think for us, you know, we certainly enjoyed a lot of good times together as a family and, and certainly um, between the three of us we had a lot of fun, but there was a lot of fear that, that did um, control, I guess, a lot of our lives growing up. Yeah. So what sort of things happen in your house that upset you? I think um, obviously the relationship between my mum and dad was um, quite traumatic at times and, and dad was a quite aggressive drinker um, and it wasn't until we sort of hit our, our high school years that he started to take it out on us but predominantly he would come home and he'd be quite... Um, vocally and emotionally, I think, aggressive towards my mum. And, and that meant for me, I mean, we would always wake up when we heard those sorts of goings on within the household and, and I became a, a strong protector of my mum. And I think that follows through um, even into my life today. I am very protective of my mum and my family and I think that was a, a skill I now call yeah. <laughs> that I developed very early on in my life. And I would certainly do things to become that barrier between my dad and my mum. I would mm. create um, opportunities to get up and try and stop him from um, abusing her in the early wee hours of the morning. Right. Okay. Thank you. So did you feel different at school or did you just feel like you were one of the kids? I think we always felt a little bit different because there was always, uh, I think, it was a, an unspoken thing, but um, 
there was always something different about our household. And growing up in suburbia, people know when there are issues within your household because everyone can hear what's going on. So I think early on, um, it was apparent that our household was a little bit different, but it was always a little bit different anyway, because my dad was the only one that worked night shift. So that always meant that we were, dad was never around. It was acceptable that my dad was never really a part of our family growing up when we were quite young. It wasn't really until I got to high school that I realised that, that no, there is something very different about my family. So did you have many friends? I didn't have a lot of people that I trusted growing up. It took me a long time to make friends and then and trust people long enough to call them my friends too, I think. Um, having said that, you know, we, we always had um, neighbourhood kids that we would, would hang out with, yeah, but yeah. Um, it wasn't really until I probably hit high school that I probably developed friends that I'd call friends today, yeah. yeah. Could you tell them about your dad's drinking? Uh, I did try early on at high school to try and tell some of my girlfriends about the goings on within our household. And and for them, I think, and even now, it seems so far-fetched, some of the, the crazy things that would happen from time to time, it was really hard for them to understand uh, what we were going through. And I remember there was one time where I did share with one of my girlfriends about the goings on within the household and then... Finally, she came over because we lived in a country area so that um, it wasn't like you would pop over to people's houses on a yeah. regular basis. Um, she came over one day and uh, she met my dad for the first time and it wasn't until that point that um, she experienced my dad firsthand and he could be such a charming man that <laughs> she walked away from the household and she's like, then no, I I, your dad could not have done any of the things that you <laughs> – potentially said he had so it was at that point I realized it was too difficult for people outside of the household to understand what was going in within the household so I I'd stopped talking and sharing with people about what was actually happening in the household at times yeah so did you sort of deny it was happening or was it just a bit of a secret I think it was a bit of a secret, but there was probably a lot of denial for myself as well. And that, I think, was probably a coping mechanism more than anything, just to get through what you needed to get through at high school. High school's hard enough without um, having to deal with... Having a problem there. Yeah, that's exactly right. Ah. So I think there was a little bit of denial there. And it was just more about um, keeping on. Just You just had to get through this period. There was always something that um, there are exams coming up. There are other things that you just need to focus on. So you tried to block out the surrounding things at home as much as you possibly could. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Uh, so, Barry, across to you. Um, so growing up, which parent of yours was the alcoholic? My mum. Your mum? Okay. Yeah. So, And how did that affect the family? Um, you know, um, <clears throat> growing up in my home, uh, I didn't know my mum was an alcoholic. You know, um, it was quite normal for my mom to be drinking um you know especially on the weekends and my uncle would come up and you know he'd bring a you know a slab of beer and that would be a normal thing um you know i guess the person i um focused on a lot when i was younger was my father because he was abusive towards me and um and that was um you know that's what i noticed um so you know, um, a lot of my experiences growing up around alcoholism were about my dad trying to control me or not being, 
feeling like I was less than around him rather than, you know, my mom's alcoholism, you know, and looking back at that now, I think that, um, um, that, you know, my dad was reacting towards my mom's alcoholism. Yeah. 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 I think that's very common that a a parent will try to control what Mm. is controllable Mm. because the alcoholic's so far out of control Mm. that, um, by exercising a bit of control in the family, you'd, you sort of think, yeah, things are, yeah, things are going okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, so did you feel responsible for your mum's drinking? Or well, uh, I guess you, as you didn't really know that was your, no. that it was a problem. Yeah. That's yeah. probably a silly question. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, so what, what sort of things did you have to do in your family that was sort of a bit unusual? I think a lot of the stuff that we would do is like, I remember the neighbors once saying, um, sort of like, uh, well, you know, sort of going easy on the kids all the time, you know, like, cause we, my dad would have us do things and sort of like, um, we'd be doing a lot of work around the house and stuff like that. And my dad would have me, you know, wash the car, wash the motor home, doing a lot of things that were really quite extreme things. So, yeah. you know, it was like living in a life of deprivation. And, um, I guess that was what was unusual about it was that, we did things that, you know, um, it, there was, a, we were expected to be around each other all the time. So we did a lot of traveling, which seems good, but there was always that expectation. We had to do everything together. Like my dad always wanted us to keep us together. And, um, you know, I think that was a part, big part of my dad's tradition. If I look back at you and my dad's family is that they all seem to marry someone who has what we call isms or, or which could be alcoholism or workaholism and that type of thing. So it was a, a life around um, doing things in a sort of way that there wasn't a lot of enjoyment in it. In it. So it wasn't doing things for the fact that you're going to, oh, we're going to feel really good about this and, you know, um, you know, a sense of really thriving with life. Yeah. It's more like um, became sort of a burden. Everything sort of became um, as if, you know, we talk about an L on it as if it had this big sack and, you know, I, I'm putting more rocks in my in my sack in the, on my back because that's what you do that's in life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so a lot of alcoholics move around a lot. Um, so did your family do any geographicals to try and start afresh? Yeah, like um, we lived in um, one part of um, one part of the country, and then we moved right across the whole country. So we moved about. 5,000 kilometers. So that was the first geographical we did. And, um, you know, and then I, I sort of continued that on in my life, but actually my, my dad's family did a geographical from Europe to, 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 you know, to Canada. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, that was a big part of our life and that was a big part of my dad's life even like he wasn't an alcoholic, but I think it was always seemed like we were running away from things. And I had this sense and I don't know, I can't say this is true absolutely true or not that we were actually running away from my my mom's family because my dad my my mom's brother was an alcoholic and so i was sort of ripped from my i i felt like i was sort of ripped from my uncle who i was really close to who actually gave me a sense that he was encouraging me and supporting me mm. so um you know that's the kind of um you know uh, moving around i experienced yeah. yeah did that impact your school yeah, like I moved uh, when I was in grade four, and that was really difficult. Um, 
I, it took me a while to sort of, um, feel like I was part of school and connected with others. So I didn't really come out of my shell till about grade four. And, um, you know, um, and then when I was in other schools after that, I, I, I would, because I moved, what happened was, I think I only felt like I could have one friend and that friend I would hang on to with dear life, you know, because I thought, oh, you know, um, I'm not going to have another friend or maybe we're going to move. And I did move schools quite often. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when did you start sort of feeling like you were doing well at school? When did that happen? I did really well in year seven. Yeah. So by the time I moved to that other province and I really settled in, I was excelling in everything and academically and even with sport. So, um, I did really well with that. Yeah. And, and then, um, from then on, um, things kind of went downhill. Um, I had some bullying behavior towards me in year eight and nine, and I thought my dad could help me with that, but he never really, he never supported me. Like I, I wanted him to, you know, nobody can support me exactly how I want to, but you expect it as a child, I think. Yeah. You know, um, later as an adult, I learned that. And, and, um, so when I went into high school, it sort of got, I ended up moving to another high school. Then I had a good friend and then he moved away. And then I really felt like I was on my own. And even though I was really good in sport, I didn't, didn't bother trying out for the basketball team. I was really into basketball. And, um, you know, my, even though I was smart enough and I just didn't feel like I could thrive in, in high school because I didn't have the emotional sport and what I know now, you know? Yeah. 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 So did you have difficulty in relationships as well? Yeah. Um, I would say I would consider my relationships codependent. So, you know, codependency is difficult to, to understand. I mean, I think most, most basic definitions are basically a a reliance on somebody that's beyond what they can provide. And it's not a thriving on my own to be able to carry out with actions without getting approval from someone else. So, um, I remember my first girlfriend, when she broke up with me the first time, I was a mess, you know, I was crying and crying. I, I won't forget that day. You know, it's funny now. And, um, you know, I remember wanting to marry her early on. I was not even close to being, you know, wanting to be in a position. And then I must say that my relationship after that was, uh, just very fleeting relationship, you know, it was, um, Yeah. Uh, and then, and then I decided oh, I wanted to be with someone after that relationship and I decided I wanted a long-term relationship. And then that relationship probably, I, I think mirrored w- what I see in my parents today. Yeah. Um, and we had a lot in common. We, we, we do have a lot in common and, but I think like, like my friendships with, with men as well is that I needed something for them to be able to boost me. It was never about looking within myself to build myself up. So I needed approval. You know, I needed to say, um, I needed someone to listen to me all the time. Not, not me necessarily listening to them. I needed someone to, um, always be encouraging me. It was like that mm. lack that I had from the alcoholic home that, you know, sort of put me in a position that I always felt like I couldn't get enough from other people. They could, they could never be enough for me. You know, of course they couldn't because no. I, I needed to find it within myself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Uh, so back to you, Emma. So relationships, did you find relationships difficult? Yeah, I, I have found relationships difficult over the years. And I've certainly found myself um, falling into relationships with with drinkers again over time as well. And I think um, I, I particularly early on before, for coming into Elanon, um, I was more attracted to those people for for whatever reason. You yeah. just are. It's something yeah. you know. It's something that um, they're exciting, quite often, and charming. And um, so there's a real attraction there. So I have found myself in situations where I uh, seem to be repeating behaviours of the past. But over time, and and I'm learning um, more and more about myself. And um, but yeah, even now, I mean. I haven't made the choice to marry and have kids and those sorts of things. And I think that really is a result of of growing up in an alcoholic um, household and and not being able to to trust people easily. Yeah, um, I think I think that 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 shows that lack of trust. Um, it's very difficult to build a relationship with someone if you don't trust people generally, because you always suspect something about them. Yeah. Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne, bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers. The first Sunday of the month at 7am on your favourite station, 3CR, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Uh, there are about 80 episodes of our show available on podcasts from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash living free. So you can check them out. Uh, if you want to send us a message, then you can contact us via 3CR on 03 9419 8377. Uh, we're on email, uh, 3 at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter as 3CR Living Free. Uh, I'm talking with um, Barry and Emma, and we're talking about living with the family disease of alcoholism and how Alaron family groups can help. Um, so growing, growing up and getting out of school, so what was life like for you, Barry, sort of moving out into the workforce? When I was in my early 20s, like I finished university and... Um, about age 24 and then I I at that time there was a downturn in the economy and I struggled a lot trying to find a job um feeling feeling myself out in the work world one of the biggest things for me was that um I just thought I wasn't enough and even though I had a degree in something I I I thought that I'd never find a job in that so you know I'm I was under earning a lot at that time and and um I would sleep until about 10 o'clock I was very confused about, you know, my role and, you know, um, getting a job and so on. I think it had a lot to do with my dad's control and, um, because he, he would force me out to, to work if I wasn't working, you know, that was the kind of thing he, he just thought it was, that, that was what you just did, you know, you, you, you earned a living. And so I think I was rebelling against that, you know, at the time. And, and, um, so I remember I had my own little lawn mowing business that's what I did and I just did you know um things like that around the city and and um 
And then it took me a couple of years and then I actually found something that I really liked and I actually moved towards that. And that was really good. I ended up working really hard and, and I moved up really quickly and people actually liked me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which was like, I, I couldn't believe it. They were actually saying I was, you know, I was a hard worker and all these things that I thought I could never be, I think. And, um, and then I moved up to that, I became a manager in that profession and, and, um, or in that industry and, and, um, ended up moving, moving, um, for a really good job. And I had a really good job and, and then, um, but that didn't work out very well because when I was managing, I expected everybody to do exactly what they should be doing, you know, yeah. doing their job. And, you know, and it was a lot of, uh, young men and mostly in their twenties. And I didn't deal with that at well at all. And I, I, I kind of looking back, I think I was reliving some of the ways that I was treated, um, through my dad again. And, and it wasn't, I wasn't able to communicate what I really wanted from people. Mm. It was more like a demand, you know, yeah. or not saying anything and figuring that they could, you know, read my mind, yeah. you know? So yeah, um, that was a big part of my work life. I ended up, that only lasted about 18 months. So I was lucky to last that long looking back at it. And then I went to another profession um, and then, um, I did really, uh, you know, I, I, I did really well in school this time. The first stint in university, I didn't do that great. And then the second time I had, I got a distinction in my degree, did really well with that. And then, um, when I came out of that, I figured oh, I'll just work at the same old, same, this, uh, just an easy job, you know, and it paid well enough, but not well enough carrying a mortgage at that time, you know? And then, um, so what I did was we moved, we moved again. We moved to that Northern part of that country it was really barely cold, isolated place. And then I became, I think, and had already become like a workaholic is what I call it. So working 60 to 70 hours. And, you know, that took me away from other people and took me away from myself. Yeah. 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 Okay. So did you find you needed to depend on other things like alcohol or drugs or anything? Um, I did go through a stint from about, I, I grew up in a small place, so we started drinking when we were around 13, some of me, myself and some of my good buddies. And, and uh, but I, in my 20s, I sort of thought, oh, this is not working. Like I got to a point where it's, this is horrible. Um, you know, um, I had, I just thought, no, nah, I can't do this. Uh, I got to a point where I just didn't value myself or my life. And I think, that was, there was a certain turning point there that was about age 20. And then by about, you know, after I'd left university, I just stopped. Um, yeah, just not cold Turkey, but you know, I, I was a binge drinker, so I just stopped going out on Friday and Saturday and stopped drinking. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, so how about you, Emma? What, what was life like once you moved out of home? Um, yeah, well, I think for me, the, the the earliest opportunity I could have to move out of home, I took it. Yeah. So I, when I, even though actually dad had actually left us during um, my high school years anyway, um, but regardless of that, I still felt this need to run. Uh, and so I started, when I started university, um, I moved um, out straight away. I was 17 at the time. So I moved straight in onto mm. campus at the university and probably similar to, to Barry, I think growing up in that household, I threw myself into my high school studies um, and I developed a habit of working 
right through the night and then starting early the next day and um, and I'd also do music and sport and a whole heap of other things. So I, I developed this <laughs> perfectionism or this overachieving type of thing when I first um, finished high school. I did the same thing through university and then and I took that into my work life as well after that and I did quite a quite a few geographicals I think in my life um, and but through all of those areas I definitely created what I, I called too similar to Barry um, an alcohol a work <laughs> workaholism um, throughout not alcoholism but workaholism throughout my uh, working and studying careers as well and I think you know as I moved my way into the to the workforce that really assisted with my career yeah. progression quite quickly. It was only when I started reaching sort of higher elements of my career I realised that some of the skills that that I have developed are, are not working for me now. Yeah. Yeah, particularly the interpersonal skills. Yeah, the control. <laughs> the <Yeah>. control. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So at, at what point did you think you needed help from outside? What, what triggered that? I think um, I, I probably reached a point within my career where I realised that, that some of the behaviours and things that I was doing were not having the results that I wanted to achieve. And I, and I could see myself um, potentially un wittingly hurting people and and I didn't mean to it was just the way I was communicating wasn't an effective way of communicating Mm. um and I wasn't achieving the results that I had achieved before by using these techniques so it was at that point I was like okay yeah there there is something that I, I really need to look at within me to move forward yep so what did you do I first I sought um, counselling and got some help outside of the work environment, and it was through that that I was um, t- so even through that was probably the first realization that there was alcoholism within my household. It probably wasn't until that point that I had the realization that I'd grown up in an alcoholic family. Wow! Yeah, um, because there was no discussion of it. Um, mm. Once Dad had left and once we'd all moved on with the rest of our lives, nobody sort of looked back and reflected on potentially what we grew up in. And it was at that point I was recommended Al-Anon. Um, so still doing a geographical, I, I attempted Al-Anon at that point and that was probably the first introduction for me into Al-Anon. Mm. So how did you find it? Well, at first um, I had probably a little bit of uh, pro- not dissimilar to relationships. I had this fear and this, this lack of trust. So I gave it a, a, a few goes, but it wasn't until I moved back into my home state, into Victoria, that I, I gave it a proper go and went into um, Al-Anon and did the, the first six meetings. Um, and it was at that point I realised I, I finally found a place that I belong. Yeah. You could relax. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I guess coming back to Melbourne brought you closer to your family as well. Yeah, it yeah. did. It was another reason for me to, to go back to Al-Anon and explore Al-Anon properly this time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what was the thing that you found helped you most with your relationship with your family? For me, um, it started with the, the other people's stories within the room. It, it began there. I, I heard my story from across the room. I heard other people explaining that um, they too are, are 
perfectionists and they too have this sometimes this, this um, need to control. And then when I started hearing their stories and how they um, approached things and how they looked after themselves um, in the process, I realised, oh, I yeah, I can't believe there's people like me within the rooms. And then from there, it was learning the tools, the slogans and those sorts of things, you know, just one day at a time um, that helped me with my relationships within my family, but more importantly, my relationship with my dad. Yeah, okay. Uh, So back to you, Barry. Um, Geographicals, have you finished your geographicals? No. (laughs) No. Well, you can tell probably by my accent. Um, um, I guess I got up to living in one province uh, about halfway up, which is, you know, it's a cold country. Yeah. So then we moved up to the northern part of that province and we lived there for seven years a very cold climate but it, it was a good experience um and then from there my wife's dad had died and so we thought it would be a great opportunity we'd been living seven years up in the far north and we'd moved to australia oh big <laughs> so, change yeah, yeah so that's how i got here you know okay um yeah so did that align with you coming to Al-Anon? Absolutely. It's funny because the eight years or more that I've been living here, um, yeah, like I I knew my wife and I were having problems. Um, I wasn't being I I wasn't showing the commitment I needed to as a husband. I really firmly believe that now, and um, and I take responsibility for that today. Yeah, you know, without without being in a program, you know, I wouldn't realize that. I don't think, and I know I wouldn't. Um, yeah. So, um, my wife had suggested she started reading some things about codependency. So I got me into one fellowship and then someone noticed that I was talking about my mother and, and her alcoholism. Cause you know, I realized that my mom was drinking, you know, not until I was in my twenties. I didn't really notice it before because yeah. my mom's drinking was sort of you know, in in the background, we never because she was a, you know, she would just have it in a, you know, it wasn't always in a beer or anything yeah. in a bottle, right? So, um, yeah, someone said I should go to this meeting, so I went to this meeting, and um, I don't really, I, I remember it being very odd to me, you know, all these people sitting around talking about their lives. I think what struck me in the beginning was that they're talking about things that we don't normally talk about, your feelings. And everybody had a chance to listen. It wasn't no one was what we call cross talking, talking across the floor, mentioning anything about their share. And then it took me another year, and then I came in, and then that's when I knew this was my home, you know, yeah. my real home. Yeah. yeah. So did it help you to understand? Well, I guess understand alcoholism, but understand yourself, your part in it. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the biggest things for me in the rooms was that I, I could talk about things that, like, I, I wouldn't even say to my wife, you know? Yeah. Because it gave me that freedom that, you know, like, no one's going to say anything back to me. Like, so I get my say. It's like, you know, and and that I can express my feelings. Like, I think for me, there's a lot of confusion around feelings, having a feeling even. So when other people are sort of holding what we call holding the space for me, you know, that's just like even we have here today, but, you know, holding the space means that someone's just listening to me and I have that opportunity to speak 
It allows me to get in touch with how I'm really feeling despite, you know, what's going on with me. And I think that's what Al-Anon does is that it, it, it holds a space for me that I begin to understand why I'm having the feelings that I'm having. That feelings, the feelings may not be absolutely true, but I'm having them and that's all right. You know, and that also that, um, I become to come into touch with myself far more than I ever would. You know, I did a lot of writing, I did counseling, I did, you know, I would do extreme exercise and, you know, <laughs> go on to, you know, eating different things, but none of that really may, like helped me because the Al-Anon program actually holds that space for me, not only in the meeting, but it holds me my space through the, you know, we use the 12 steps and 12 traditions and usually with the help of a sponsor and help of other members that that kind of it becomes a sounding board that but it's a healthy sounding board that allows me to grow into the person that I'm meant to be you know without all the control that I used to do on myself or others to think that I could affect the outcome yeah you know yeah yeah Yeah. okay thank you (laughs) yes yeah I, I think it's about getting your life into perspective that not being able to talk about it with other people means that you can't sort of get it into perspective. And once you can actually tell your story, it all, everything falls into place and you sort of get, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, mm. that's why I am like I am, yeah. Mm. Uh, we've got another couple of um, announcements. Uh, the first one is the QR Code podcast series, which I'll just play that. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're... Chronically Chilled, a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. You're listening to Living Free on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. So I'm talking with Barry and Emma and we're talking about living with the family disease of alcoholism and with the help of Al-Anon family groups. Um, so, Emma, start with you. Um, so coming back into, or coming into Al-Anon and sort of getting serious, I guess, how did that help you deal with your family? Yeah, um, I think it was funny. I, I came back into Al-Anon at a time where I thought, I'm not really sure why I'm here, but I know I need to be here. And then I, I got in the rooms. I'm like, yeah, I need to be here. This I feel comfortable here. Um and there's people like me here. And then within um, a month or two of being within the program, um, my my dad, who is the alcoholic, um, attempted suicide on two occasions. And there was one evening where I, I got a call from the Victorian police letting me know that he had been rushed into into hospital. And I, um, and I went down there to to help him, I guess, well, be with him while he was going through his treatment. And and for me, that's when I realised that, yeah, the program's really with me and the program's here to, to really help me through this situation. 
I um, when I entered the hospital, it was really interesting. It, it's um, such a challenge when situations like that do happen because immediately the the doctors within the hospital wanted him to go home as quickly as as they possibly could get him home without sort of acknowledging that there was the disease of alcoholism that was um, affecting him. Um, But I knew because of his injuries and thanks to the program, I really got strength from the fact that I know that this is a disease and I know he's in the right place and um, they, at that point in time, because they did want to transfer him in and out, and, and I understand, you know, they need the beds, they really tried to put the emphasis on us to take him home and take care of him. I think it was thanks to the strength of the program that I realised that, no, I, I can't take care of my dad in this situation and he was still heavily intoxicated. I know he needs to be here. And, I, and luckily for us, we also had a counsellor within the hospital that acknowledged that as well and acknowledge that there's something um, deeper there, that we were, I was able to gather strength from that, use the program to help me help him get the help that he needed. Yep, okay. So how long have you been in Eleanor now? Two, just over two years now, yeah. Yeah. So how's your relationship with your dad? My relationship with my dad is actually the best it has ever been, I think, in my life. And he's still an active drinker. Um, and I really do attribute that to the program, I think early on in in my relationship with my dad, it, it has been quite tumultuous. I have been the the person that has that stood up against him at certain times, and I think through that we've um, early on I was the challenger for him. Um, and given the type of person he was, he doesn't he doesn't like people to <laughs> challenge him at all. Uh, and, and there was even times, you know, where he was. Um, under the influence and he would say some horrendous things um, about you personally and and sometimes it's really hard to attribute that to to the fact that it is just the alcohol that's talking and and not him as a person. Um, So to hear my dad even say I love you is is something I'd never heard growing up. But um, Al-Anon has helped me open up the conversation to the point where my dad now feels like he's not being judged even though he still has the disease and he can communicate freely to me and I know now when he says that he loves me he genuinely means that Uh, and he's genuinely thankful that I that I call him Um, and I know that he he appreciates the relationship that we have now and I, I would never even have the ability to understand um, what he's going through without the help of the program and understanding that, you know, alcoholism is a disease. And that really helped me put things into perspective. So what what do you understand now about what you used to do that enabled your dad to continue drinking? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I know now that through being in the program, by running around, by um, providing him with food and clothes and, and all of those ailments, it seem like they're, they're quite simple things that you would want to do for any family member, just enabled him to drink more. It enabled him to continue. Um, he didn't have to leave the house then to go and get the things that he needed for his own survival. I knew that I was then enabling him. And, you know, when he does um, call out, 
even when he was in hospital, not to keep running down there all the time and doing his washing for him as a simple thing because they have facilities there for him to do his washing and it's really important for him to do his own washing. It's those sorts of things because I am a bit of a fixer and a rescuer, I've realised. I now have an awareness around, you know, that that is something that I that I do have a tendency to do and I'm able now I can do it acknowledge it and if I feel like it is yeah. the right thing to do I can I can do certainly it. do it yeah okay um, yeah stopping fixing things is a is a hard thing to do because you know they're broken and you know you could fix it <laughs> yeah okay uh, okay so back to you Barry um, so once you you sort of understood what was happening in your life and. and the fact that you are in your way in in real terms. So how did that change the way that you related to other people? So can you say, uh, ask that question again? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, understanding that the way that you relate to other people is a problem, you know, once you understood that the problem exists in yourself, that you're the one who creates the problem, how did, did that help you relate to other people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think Alan helped me that way was that I became a listener. What I what I noticed my dialogue when I was say with my wife was that she I would do a lot of the talking, she would listen, she would know exactly what was going on, me, she could help me out, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um and then and then I I didn't have the ability to actually listen and be there for her, you know, and so that was a very imbalanced and I think Helen helps me to begin to have that compassion for others. And in the rooms, when I'm listening to other people, I can listen to the, you know, sometimes, of course, the the stories are horrible, like we've heard, you know. And, um, you know, I I begin to have compassion that other people were having problems that could be the same in mind or different, whatever. It doesn't even matter. Everybody experiences a certain... um, has a has a different journey in their lives and and that I that there might be something that they have or that they can tell me whether I don't like their story or not that that could help me to live my own life you know and I think even the process of the steps was like you know um in the step four we do a fearless moral imagery and when I had to do that then I then I realized like when we do resentments out of that too and some of the people that would go through my head and they could still go through my head today and they're not even people close to me that there was something in them that I was resentful about, but it was actually in me. Yeah. I think that's the leveling part of what I learned in the 12 step is that I get to a point where if I, if I'm dealing with my stuff enough, that means I'm listening really well, but I'm also, you know, the process of steps is a very, very powerful process. And the leveling I'm talking about is the leveling it makes me feel as if it doesn't matter who they are. I can be sitting, you know, I was thinking coming in on, on the, on the Metro today on the train and listening to someone talking. And, and I was feeling it was alcoholism in there. I could, I could hear, I could, you know, listen to something, but I was thinking that those people, like I can listen to that story and everybody is equal with me. And there's nobody that's above or below me. So that becomes a different, a sort of much different interaction that I would have prior to being in program. So it's sort of that interaction where I feel as if I'm connected with others and that it doesn't matter what status they have, that 
they're still going to be going through things. And, you know, that's that it's a humbling program. You know, it humbles me incredibly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Did you find that you, did you realize that you couldn't fix yourself? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, I remember when I was in my twenties and having a horrible time, you know, feeling like this is not worth it. And why, why was often the question. And, and, um, yeah, and, and trying to do everything on my own, like, you know, um, we say in the program, our best thinking got us into the rooms, yeah, you know, that's right. and, and I think what that means is that no matter how hard I, hard I try, I couldn't figure it out on my own. So that's that, you know, letting go to the point where I can rely on others and, mm. and I'm not like, I, I become connect, so connected with others that. I can really feel what they're going through, not in a sympathetic way, in an empathetic way, that it makes me so that I can, um, um, I can, I can much easier, more easily communicate, um, and I, I and, and and I don't have to rely on myself. Like I need to connect with others. I, I and I connect with the others on a daily basis. So I'm checking my own thinking. Yep. Because I because I quickly go into that control so quickly that I need to step out of my head with someone else and say, Hey, what do you think of this? And then they can, you know, mm. and I allow for that feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Emma, um, did you have any issues with the rest of the family when you got into Al-Anon and started doing things differently? Did your family react to that? Yeah, I definitely think they did. I think one, the relationship with my dad, they really reacted to that. Um, and I, I think from a protective, a sense of protection for me, they really felt like my dad would manipulate me and hurt me. So there was this real sense of, of judgment. It felt like I was really being judged for having a relationship, even though I knew I had the program and I knew the help that I was giving him was the right help. It wasn't me trying to rescue him. Um, and even since then, I think in mentioning that I've, I'm going to a meeting, there's this, I can hear my mum at the other end of the phone going, oh. <sighs> So, but however, she has gone to one meeting with me, and yeah. after that meeting, she's like, "Oh, I get it. I really yeah. get it." But uh, she hasn't been back into the rooms again. No, since, so. <laughs> I'm hopeful. Yeah, it's a personal journey. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, listen, that's about all we've got time for today. Um, so, I'd like to thank Emma and Barry, Barry for coming in today and sharing their Alan Family Group's recovery experience with us. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Bill. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from a gambling addiction and we'll be joined by some members of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, Stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Thanks again for listening to the Living Free program today.